Hey, good morning, everyone. Sorry about daylight savings time, but um, that'll be the last time, hopefully, for a while. Uh, during the season of Lent, we are in a series leading up to Easter, and we've been looking at uh, every week one word that can help change our lives. And we've started with the word no, how that one little word can begin to declutter our life and kind of make space for God. Then uh, the following week, we looked at the word yes, how uh, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ Jesus. And we can say yes to God every day, and we can actually say yes to life every day. And then last week, Robbie did a great job helping us understand the re- uh, importance of remembering in our lives. I'm going to tell you, however, that the word for this week is maybe the hardest word in this whole series. It is going to strike at our pride. Some of us are not going to like this word at all. As you can see, it is the word sorry. Not like oops, not like my bad, not like um, I made just a little mistake. It's going to be like going under the knife and examining myself and ourself with kind of an unflinching honesty and confessing with humility to set things right. It's going to be kind of like surgery for our soul. So not only did we have daylight savings time, but now we have surgery at church. Okay, It's a real simple word, but people find amazing reasons to avoid it. Some people have not said this word literally in years. So let's start at this point. A few weeks ago, Robin bought me a new shirt, as she often will do. And um, I decided to finally wear it one day. I tore the price tags off, put it on, headed out, went to a meeting, ran some errands. And later that day, I had to go to the bank. And as I'm standing at the teller's window, the teller looks at me and says, uh, Mr. Grams, you might want to take that off for your shirt. And I looked down, and all the way down the side of my shirt was one of those adhesive labels that they have now that tells you the size of your shirt. And I had been telling everybody what size I wore that day. It's kind of embarrassing to think that you walked around most of a day with a label on your shirt. To make it worse, this past week, I had to take my car to the dealership, the place I bought it, because one of the tires, the back left tire, kept losing air. Every few days, I had to air it up, and the light kept coming on, telling me that it was low. And so I took it to the dealership, and after he inspected it, he came out and said, Mr. Grimes, did you actually look at your tire before you came in? He said, there's this great big steel pin in your tire. Now, you would have think I would have noticed that giant pin in my tire because I'd aired it up two or three times, but I didn't. Maybe I bought it like that. Who knows? He took one look at it, knew what was wrong, and he saved my tire. Now, imagine just for a moment that with either one of those cases, I said, you know what? I don't want to be bothered by that. I don't want to be bothered by a sticker on my clothes or a steel pin in my tire. In fact, if I just ignore them, they'll probably go away on their own. Imagine if I had said to that teller, you know, why would you tell me I had a sticker on my shirt? You're kind of fashion shaming me here in front of everybody. Or what if I said to the auto mechanic, you know, you're kind of tire shaming me, 
car shaming me. You're making me feel bad. Here's an interesting thing. We don't do that with our bodies. We don't do that with our tires. We don't do that with our businesses or our houses. The place that we only seem to do that with is with our souls. We only do it with the thing that God says matters more than anything in the world. For example, I have a resentful temper. Or I have an undisciplined tongue. Or I have a habit of lust. Or I live in bondage to some kind of gossip. Or maybe I'm shackled to selfishness. Or maybe my real God in life is money. That's kind of my identity. And people who know me well can clearly see this stuff. Just like the teller saw it on my shirt and the mechanic saw the pin in my tire. But I can't see some of these things. And telling me about them would not be very welcome. So here's what we do. We go and we live kind of a respectable double life. We still go to church. We still pray. We still love God. And then we kind of just believe, even though we also kind of doubt at times. But sorry becomes mostly a word I use to soothe over relational unpleasantness. Sorry is a word that I use just to control people. Sorry is not the word I use to fully confront the ugliness of my soul. So what I do is I keep them, those character defects, vaguely in the background. And I don't kind of systematically kind of check myself. I mean, why would I? Why would I make a priority of seeking God's help to remove them? Why would I ever invite other people to look at these hidden areas? I mean, surely God is okay with that, right? Well, this morning, what we're talking about gets so deeply into a word in the Christian community that we've used for years called grace. It is a word that is often misunderstood and misapplied, and it often just kind of turns into a word that means pain avoidance. And it really gets into deep, deep water when we talk about guilt and confession and redemption and mercy. And it really talks about what kind of people we want to be. I want to tell you as much love as I can tell you, and I say this to myself. We have a label attached to our shirt. We have a pin in our tire. And we're going to have to ask God to help us, to deliver us at all costs from the great priority of my life being to pretend that it isn't there. Now, there's a strange, and I'll be honest with you, kind of a nerving story in the New Testament that talks about how high the stakes are when it comes to this area. In the earliest days of the church, when the church was just getting started in Jerusalem, one of the couples in that community was a husband and wife. They're named Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we don't always know what drew them to the community of the church, but something attracted them to Jesus. Something attracted them to the early church. And something appeals to them about following Christ. And one of the most unusual, kind of out of the norm things about the early church was it was just replete with generosity. Many people, as you know, in the early church were poor. But some people had resources, and some of those people would share them very liberally with everyone else. One of them was a guy named Joseph. He, he sold a field that he had, a, a property that he had, and he gave it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And they thought so highly of Joseph in the early church that they actually nicknamed him Barnabas, 
which meant son of encouragement. And then comes Ananias and Sapphira, this couple. And like Joseph, apparently, they have resources. And here's what the book of Acts says happens. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now let's kind of play this out for just a moment. They see how other people with resources are just giving stuff away. Maybe they feel a little pressure to give and kind of resent it. Maybe they see Joseph get a new name, Barnabas, and they feel a little jealous that old Joseph gets a new name. They want to be generous, like most people, but they also want to be rich. They want to be loved, but they also want to indulge in jealousy. They want to be celebrated, but at the same time, they want to deceive. And what they have is what we often deal with on our own soul level, and that is divided hearts. Isn't that true? I mean, we want God. We love God. We want to follow Jesus. We really do. But we also want what we want. So Ananias gets this idea. He thinks, you know, we could take this field, this money, this property that we have, and we could take some of the money from selling it. We could give it to the church, but we could keep some of the money back for ourselves. I mean, it wouldn't really be lying. I mean, we don't have to say we're giving all of the money. I mean, we just know how people will think that we're giving all the money. And we'll have kind of this false reputation for being really generous people. We'll be grieveful people, but at the same time, we'll be thought of as being generous. We can have the admiration of others, but listen, secretly, we'll betray the values that we pretend to hold up as being great. So he goes to his wife, Sapphira, and he says, Sapphira, here's the plan. Now listen, this is a key moment in this story because at this point, Sapphira could say, hey, dum-dum, there's a label on your shirt. There's a pin in your tire. There's a defect in your character, and I'm going to rip that bad boy off. Wives are really good at doing that. Unfortunately, she doesn't do that in this case. She looks at her husband and she says, that's a great idea. Neil Platinga is a writer. He calls this the sin of conniving. He says it's a really, really destructive sin. It's when we pretend not to notice our character defects. And good connivers don't even acknowledge that they're conniving. They just connive. Now the Apostle Peter finds out about this little scheme. We don't know how, but he does. And instead of conniving, Peter just goes directly to the source. Peter just confronts Ananias directly. He says, it's very clear to me that you have violated one of the great values of our church. And he makes it very clear the deepest sin in Ananias' life is not the jealousy or the resentment or the greed. In fact, he says to Ananias, man, you could have kept all the money if you wanted to. Nobody was holding a gun to your head. You didn't have to sell the field and give it to the church. He said the real sin here is the sin of deceit. It's the sin of a double life, Ananias. Now what happens next is pretty shocking. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. 
Then, a couple hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. Same conversation with Peter. Same results. She falls down dead. And they carry her body out. And the text says again, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. No kidding. (laughs) We do know that Ananias and Sapphira were flawed members. They weren't perfect people. The text does not say that they didn't go to be with Jesus. We know that God is the kind of person, kind of being who does the eternal best he can by every human being. We're not judging Ananias and Sapphira here. What The point of the story here and the reason this story makes it into the Bible, you have to remember it's written in the very early days of the church. They're trying to grow the church. Having stories about people killing over in the church doesn't seem to be a real good marketing strategy. People are dying to come to our church. Here's what I think is going on, and a lot of people have interpreted this a lot of different ways. You have to remember that the church was a community of unprecedented spiritual power. Power to heal, power to forgive, power to break down ethnic barriers between groups that, listen, literally hated each other. It had the power to love. And power can be a great thing, but power can also be very dangerous. It's important to know how power operates. This past week, I had a problem with my computer. I could not get it to boot up. No matter what I did, no matter which button I pushed, no matter how many times I tried, I could not get the stupid thing to power up. And finally, it just dawned on me after about an hour. It could be that my battery's dead. So I pulled out my AC adapter. I plugged it in the side. I plugged it in the wall. And you know what happened? Computer buck booted up. See, here's what happened early in the church. The human race got plugged in. The Holy Spirit came. And the human race got plugged into a source of power it had not known since the Garden of Eden. How does spiritual power work, friends? This is really important to understand. For us, for our relationships, for a church, spiritual power flows best when people get honest about their flaws and their shortcomings. Now, this is a very odd kind of paradoxical thing. We think... That power comes when we're strong and we're brave and we're wise and we're smart, when we're talented and we're on, you know, just on, just on cue. But scripture teaches that the power of God really flows through people when they get serious about acknowledging their weaknesses, their guilt, their sin, their confusion, and their great need for God. This is why Paul said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, listen, is made perfect in what? Weakness. Not in strength, not in glory. And we live in a world where we think we have to show people how strong we are. And that is exactly the opposite of the way it is. You have to think of a community of people, a family, a life group. 
a group of friends, and especially a church, you have to think of it as a spiritual ecosystem. Think of it as a spiritual power grid. And we forget about this sometimes and we try to look better than we are. But when we get real, when we share real stories and real struggles and real character defects in real time, it increases the flow of spiritual power. When we say things like, I messed up this week, or I'm tempted right now, or I'm hurting real bad, it encourages honesty with people. And then sins get named, and mistakes get uncovered, and people get known, and then people get loved, and then people get healed. Am I making sense? Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in John 7. It's like electric current flowing through wires. And when you and I hide, it decreases spiritual plow. It blocks, it impedes it. It kind of uh, stops the flow of it. It doesn't just damage the person hiding, but it damages all the other people because it leads them to think, okay, it's okay to hide. And what happens is people get stuck. And when they get stuck, they get false. And when they get false, they start pretense. And then when they start pretense, they get into isolation. And when they get into isolation, it leads to despair. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, God started a new community with spiritual power that flowed with unprecedented voltage. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is really the first story of hiding and deception in the early church. It is really a repeat of the story of hiding and deception that happened way back with two people named Adam and Eve. And it's like God's second attempt. It's like a second story of the fall. And here, just like it did back in in Adam and Eve's day, it always leads to death. Now here's part of the lessons and here's why this story I think made it into the Bible. I think the early church writers and the early church leaders, and I think God wanted us to know that we should not make our ultimate fear the fear of dying. We should make our ultimate fear the fear of living the wrong kind of life. We should fear becoming the wrong kind of person. We should fear hiding and we should fear losing our soul. When it says, not once, but twice, great fear sees them all, we look at that and we think in our modern day, that must have been unpleasant. No, it wasn't unpleasant. It was insane. (laughs) And it's so funny. The people who know grace the best understand this the most. How many of you know an old song uh, called Amazing Grace? Okay. How many of you know a verse in that song that we often sing? Sometimes we skip over it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Do you know that part of the song? I have folks that I know. You have folks that you know and love. Some of them are relatives. Some of them are friends. They're in a group called AA. Folks in that group live in the knowledge and the healthy fear That apart from God, every day, every moment, moment by moment, by the grace of God, they are one choice, one drink away from hell, from death. 
Such people need a community of intense spiritual power, the kind of power that comes only through honesty and confession and cleansing. That is the church that Jesus came to start. And it is more than a shame that the power is present in places like 12-step communities, but it's not present in God's church, which is exactly the place it was born. And what I want us to know this morning is that each one of us is a part of the body of Christ. We are either contributing to, we're either becoming that kind of church, or we're either moving further away from it. So what I want to do in these last few moments together is I just want to talk about how we can become those kind of people. What does it mean to live, really live with this word sorry so that it has deep spiritual power before God and other people? Now I want to tell you up front, what I'm about to say is not rocket science. It's just really hard to do. (laughs) It's not hard to understand at all. It's just hard to do. There's three things. The first thing I have to do is I have to do a fearless and searching moral inventory. You might want to write this down. This goes way, way back in the life of the people of God. The psalmist even put it this way. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, let me be clear here. You don't do this by yourself. You do it with God and with God's help. I set aside a time... And I use what I have known for a long time in the church as the seven deadly sins. This is just my recommendation. If you just go through those, pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, greed, and laziness. If you just start with those seven deadly sins, believe me, most of us can fill up a paper. And what I do is I ask God, God... Help me see where these things are present in my thoughts and in my behavior. And I write them down, literally write them on a piece of paper. And then I hide them in a journal. (laughs) Okay? You can put them somewhere privately that only you know about. Now here's a question. How many of you think this is painful? Of course it's painful. Let me say the reason that I think that we should do this. I was thinking this week about what our world needs the most. Not what our world needs a lot of, but literally, what does the world right now need the most? I mean, we could think about better housing or better laws or better gun control or better medicine or better governments or better safety or better security or whatever. I don't think that's it. I think the world needs better people. I think number one need is that we need better people. And the good news is that everybody in this room, including me, can make a contribution. So where should you start? Where should project number one be? Well, let me ask it this way. Who do you have the best shot to make into a better person? Your friend? Your spouse? Your boss? Your kid? The person sitting next to you right now? No. Who do you have the best shot at making a better person? Yourself. For me, it's me. For me, I remove the label from my shirt because I'm responsible, listen, for being presentable in public. 
I get the pin removed from my tire because I'm ultimately responsible for my tire. So I do this fearless and searching moral inventory. And that leads to step number two. I confess my defects to God, myself, and another person. Now this comes from the Jesus community, the people of God as well. James writing to the early church, he says, listen guys, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. Did you notice the power uh, connection between confession and healing? Something happens when people get real. I confess to God, myself, and another person. Now, of those three, God, me, and another person, guess which one of the three is going to be the hardest? I guarantee you the hardest one is going to be the other person. And you know why? Because you got to look them in the face. Now, let me give you a reason why you need to do the second step and not just the first one. How many of you would like to have fewer problems in your life? Just be honest, right? What would you say and who would you say is the number one creator of problems in your life? Let me help you. You. (laughs) Me. I'm the biggest problem creator in Phil's life. But the good news is, is that together with God's help, you can pursue transformation for the number one problem source. And people will say, Phil, but do I really need to do this? I mean, come on. God can forgive me. I don't have to tell another person what I've done wrong. Of course God can forgive you. Of course God will forgive you. God can forgive any way God wants to. But it's important to do this step, and I want to tell you why. It's kind of a strange thing, but there's something about having to face the pain and the struggle of telling a friend about our name dropping and our lying and our lusting and our pouting. Oddly enough, it makes us less likely to name drop, lie, lust, and pout. Because when we know we have to face that other person, we don't want to face that. Now, let me say this. You should only do this with someone that you trust completely. Do not walk up to a stranger. Do not go to your first life group meeting and say, hey, Phil said to tell our darkest secrets. So here I am and here it comes. A lot of people find a good counselor. A lot of people, that's who they trust and that's who they find confidentiality in. So they will tell them and they'll tell them everything. I'll tell you something else. As long as I carry around the secret, I carry around the burden. I'll put it a different way. You're only as sick as your secrets. And here's what I mean by that. When I keep a secret from you, even if you tell me that you love me, inwardly what my mind is telling me is, oh, yeah, but you wouldn't say that if you knew this about me. See, you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. I'm going to say it again. You can only be fully loved if you're fully known. And that's why God and Jesus established, at least one of the reasons they established the church, was so that people could be fully known and then fully loved and then fully healed. 
This is what one author calls the peculiar relief of healing love. And you are more able to forgive other people when you are familiar with your own brokenness and your own sinfulness. Remember what I said, we live in a spiritual ecosystem. When people hide, people die. When people get real, people get healed. So here's number two. Confess to God and to yourself and to one other person where you're sorry. That leads to number three. Now we're getting tough. Number three, I do whatever I can to make right what I have made wrong. Again, not rocket science, but important. All the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, it lists ways that people in Israel, which is now you and me, we're all part of that community, would sin. They'd say things like deception and stealing and carelessness and anger and so on. And then God says to them, listen, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must make restitution in full. The purpose behind doing this inventory and then doing confession and then making amends is not that you have to do it to get God to forgive you. Please understand that. It's not even to smooth out a relationship, although very often it will. At its core, this is the way that transformation and redemption work. This is how you and I receive grace to become different people. It's crazy, but if I name drop or gossip or indulge in lust or lie, and then I know I have to tell somebody about it, and I'm going to have to set it right, I'm less likely to do that stuff than if I know I can just keep it to myself. I read a great story recently about an author. If I said their name, everybody in this room would know their name. And he was talking about how he had become obsessed with how many books he was selling versus other authors writing on the same subject matter. And instead of being happy for these other authors and the fact that more people were thinking about God because of their writings, this author was feeling real insecure and just kind of jealous. And he started thinking about this at a deeper level. And a thought occurred to him. He said, write a note to this person and congratulate him or her and tell him, hey, way to go. He decided that every time now that he got jealous of somebody, no matter who it was or what they were doing, if they were doing better than him, he would write to them and he would personally congratulate them. Now, how many of you think that was a little painful? It's kind of like giving birth. I've been told it's painful, but I'm sure glad my mom went through it. It was worth it. I hope. <laughs> now here's two things that will trip you up on number three. One of them is this thought will come to you and it will be like this. I don't really need to do this. I mean, let's compare myself to moral train wrecks over here. We got murderers, thieves, adulterers, kidnappers, rapists, addicts. I mean, they definitely need to do this. But my life is manageable. Here's one of the most dangerous things you can do. And that is to put yourself in the category of conventionally decent people. In other words, you're not perfect, but you're not a train wreck. I want to tell you, the sins of conventionally decent people are some of the most insidious 
diseased sins of all. Pride, resentment, judgmentalism, lovelessness. These are actually the ones that we need the most help seeing. If you want to know the truth, it was conventionally decent people who were the biggest enemies of Jesus. It was conventionally decent people who eventually put him on a cross and killed him. Speaking as a recovering conventionally decent person, I don't need less help with other people with my sins. I need more help. Here's another barrier. Second thing. The evil one will put this thought in your mind. It'll be this thought that I know I should do this. I know I ought to do this. I know God wants me to do this. I know I need to it. But I don't want to do it. (laughs) Of course you don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Nobody wants to do it. But what in the world does want to have to do with it? There is no scripture that says thou shalt do what thou wantest to do. Or thou shalt not do what thou wantest to do. If you're serious about this thing of following Jesus. You need to do it. Is there an easier way? I don't think so. Is there a softer way? I don't think so. To be honest with you, it's a little bit like dying. This is why Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. What in the world does that mean? What does that feel like? To be honest with you, I don't want this to sound flippant or or crass or anything like that. But to be honest with you, it hurts like hell. Being crucified with Christ hurts precisely like the hell of my sin, my betrayal, my ugliness, my deception, my selfishness. To be seen and known for what I am hurts like hell. But the thing about resurrection is if you want to experience it, you got to die first. So as we prepare to close, I just want you to take a moment and listen to something. I think it's one of the greatest portrayals of death to self that has ever been written. After I read this, we're going to partake in communion and a little uh, sorry exercise together. The Christian thinker C.S. Lewis, you know, the guy who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, a lot of other stuff, wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in it, C.S. Lewis is watching with his teacher and his guide a scene which is kind of a picture of spiritual decisions, like a metaphor. And in this particular scene, he sees a man, and the man is wrestling with lust. And in the picture, lust is pictured as kind of a lizard that that is inside of his shoulder. Because of this, the man has become a ghost. He's been eaten away by his lust and sin. And then he is offered the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is pictured like lands of mountains and great beauty. And this ghost realizes he can't live in the kingdom of God with that lizard, with that appetite still affixed to him. So he turns around and he decides to leave because he can't imagine a life without being able to gratify that appetite 
This is where we pick up the story as an angel of God comes to him. The angel says, off so soon? Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap here, he's talking about the lizard, that he had to be quiet if he came with me, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his kind won't do here. I realize that, but he just won't stop. So I'm going to have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, asked the angel. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel. Oh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost. Well, don't you want him dead? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with this as something as drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands now were very close to that lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, there's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but isn't it a mute point? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it. Just silencing the lizard. Because up here, it's so embarrassing. The angel says, may I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, listen, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Really, don't bother. Look, it's going to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it's going to be all right now. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think a gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all, said the angel. Well, I'll think it over, what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling real well today. If you still need to do it now, I'll need to be in better health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. Not so, said the angel. Well, you're hurting me now. Oh, I never said it wouldn't hurt. I said it wouldn't kill you. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill this thing without asking me? Before I knew it, it would be all over now. I cannot kill it against your will. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold-blooded, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And by the way, I'll be good. I'll admit, I've gone too far in the past sometimes, but I promise I won't do that anymore. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It will not kill you, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to die than to live with this creature. Then may I? Blast you. Go on. Get it over with. Do what you like, Bevel the ghost. 
but then ended weekly, God, help me. Please help me. In the next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard on this earth. And the burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisting it while it bit and writhed and then flung it broken back on the turf. And then the most amazing part of this story. The ghost knows that he's going to die, but he doesn't. He becomes a man of immense strength and goodness and glorious radiance. And the lizard, which appears to die at first, becomes again this magnificent horse, a stallion, and they ride with energy and joy and power that has never been seen on the earth before. And then C.S. Lewis looks at his teacher and says, Am I right in thinking that the lizard really turned into a horse? And the teacher said, Yes, but it was killed first. You won't forget that part of the story, will you? I'll try not to, sir, but does it mean that everything that is in us can go on to the mountains, to the kingdom of God? And the teacher says these words, nothing, nothing, not even the best and noblest can go on as it is right now. And nothing, not even what is lowest and most fallen, will not be raised again if it submits to death. Sorry can be one of the most painful words, but ultimately it can lead to life. And one of the great practices that Jesus left his church is that of partaking in communion. He said to regularly do this. He said, my body broken for you, my blood poured out for your sins. In other words, the crucifixion again, the resurrection again. And the reason we do these again and again and again is that we need to keep dying And then by grace being reborn again. Listen friends, this morning, don't take communion as a conventionally decent person. Take it as somebody with no pride and no reputation and no stature and no entitlement. And a realization that we all have the label still stuck to our shirt. 